Sitting at 9 o'clock, I'll take a few moments in my prayer for our time this morning to sit under the word to also pray for the Allers and for the other German missionaries uh, and now German missionaries to Wales. Um, so let's, let's pray together as we come to hear from God's word. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we come to you and we marvel at your grace. Lord, we marvel that you are indeed working through us lowly vessels that we are, that you are hiding treasures in these clay pots. Father, that you would be so humble as to work even your wonderful grace through baking cookies. Lord, what encouragement that gives us. What a wonderful testimony to see the fruit that you are able to bear forth through the power of your Spirit by the working of your gospel of grace. And Lord, as Paul professed, those 2,000 years ago, we are not ashamed of this gospel, for we know that it is your power to save. So Lord, we pray for our brothers and our sisters in Germany. We pray that you would be with the Allers, that you would continue to strengthen them and support them and equip them for the task at hand. Lord, that you would raise up laborers in the harvest to go alongside of them, that you would draw these native Germans into positions of leadership, that you would cause them to flourish in Christ and be equipped with the fruits of the Spirit, Lord, that you would move mightily to bring that dark nation back to the light of Christ. That though it may be a humble lamp set on a hill, Father, it is broadcast to all of that country, to all of the world. Indeed, as you are multiplying that ministry, Father, we give you praise that you have raised up young Christians and matured them in the gospel and sent them out to the field. Father, even further reaches than Germany. Lord, how you are pleased to work through our humble means. And I do pray that you would continue to equip this team Continue to equip this young church plant with the Holy Spirit. Father, send him out before them. Draw lost souls to yourself. We pray, O Lord, that you would be inclined to soften their hearts, to cut them deep, to know that they need the love of Christ, and then that you so freely offer it in the gospel. Lord, I pray that that would go out to all the people of Berlin, to all the people in Germany. Indeed, Lord, to all the people of this world, this this dark and dying age that is under the power of sin and death and the fall. Father, would your resurrection prove more powerful than anything else in all the world. And Father, as we come to sit under your word now, we pray that this same power would convict us of our sin would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, would renew our wills and cause us to walk so that we would be people of the way, we would be followers of Christ, we would live now for eternity, sharing this good news, this free gift of the gospel. Lord, we pray that the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you, for you, O God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Every year I have some tension following Easter on just how I am to live, how I am to be changed by this monumental upending of history. You know, Christianity is is different from every other religion. All other religions in the world essentially espouse some sort of secret knowledge, some sort of 
special revelation privy to only a few, but, but Christianity is different. It is an historical religion, not meaning that it is old, although it is old in the eyes of many of the world's religions, but it is historical in the sense that God saw fit to bind himself to history, to enter into history, to come, of course, in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we consider Easter, as we consider how we are to live on this side of the resurrection, I thought it would be helpful to go to a passage where Jewish people and and early disciples were asking that very same question. And you know, we sit under the teaching of the Apostle Luke now, we sit under his writing and the Lord superintended this man's life. He worked in his life, he made him to be a doctor so that he would write, as he says, an orderly account that we may know the truth of the gospel, that we may believe in the eyewitness accounts of the early church. And you know, that's the context that we sit under. And you know, Christianity is different because it's falsifiable. And by that I mean that it is bound to a fact. It is bound to the resurrection. Either the resurrection happened and all of the world is different because of it, or it didn't happen. You know, Islam depends on the secret dictation given to Muhammad. No one can refute that. No one is privy to that. They must believe it on blind faith. The Mormon religion claims that Joseph Smith received that revelation from God on those golden tablets. Of course, conveniently, they're nowhere to be found. You know, we have the Word of God revealed, written down, so that we may know the truth of Christianity. You know, other Far Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, they don't even talk about salvation. They're really of no use. It's just a lifestyle. There's no need for a Savior. There's no need for a Christ and a Messiah. But you see, we believe in Christianity. We believe in an historical religion. And I think the resurrection impacts all that we do. It's what we will see right here from the Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost In Acts chapter 2, you know, he says, God came down as a man. He says, this Jesus, he's talking about a human being, this Jesus is the Son of God and you crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. And so that is the context that we sit in this morning. And I'll read our passage for us beginning in the 29th verse of Acts chapter 2. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Theologian and professor Carl Truman wrote an interesting article this past week uh, in light of Easter. And he says that much of modern Christianity has lost what it means to have tragic worship. It says in the entertainment side of our culture... In all of the distractions of the world, we have lost the importance of death. So the playwrights of old, all of the epic poetry and plays that were written took so seriously death. And he said we would do well as Christians to remind ourselves of that great part in this drama called the story of redemption. That it was our sins that caused Jesus to die on the cross. He says, and I quote, Only those who accept that they are going to die can begin to look with any hope to the resurrection. Only those who accept that they are going to die can begin to look with any hope to the resurrection. I have a guilty confession. One of my new favorite TV shows is AMC's The Walking Dead. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, that's, that's not for everyone. I certainly wouldn't advise it for children. It's very gory. Nor would I advise it for the faint of heart or the weak in stomach. Uh, I made the mistake of watching the first episode while eating, and that was a very, very bad idea. But you know, this, this zombie epic, if you will, paints a very vivid portrayal of humanity uh, in the face of imminent doom, certain demise, and The main character, I won't spoil anything, but the main character, Rick, wakes up from a coma. And he finds himself in an abandoned hospital. And, you know, he doesn't really understand what's going on. Presumably he's been asleep for some days as the power's been turned off. There's no one around. But even having no idea of what happened, he seems keenly aware of the gravity of his situation. I mean, you know, where are the doctors? I think the doctors in the house would tell us if a hospital shuts down, there's got to be something pretty serious going on. You know, after all, the, the hospital is kind of the unspoken forefront of our war against mortality. You know, surely one day we'll find a cure for this pesky little thing called death, right? I don't think so. You know, he abruptly begins to realize that 
the world in which he once lived and the man that he was in it are gone. You know, the show then kind of spirals out into a fascinating web of character development and human tragedy. And I won't continue on. I don't want to spoil anything for you. But I think the nagging question that comes back again and again and again in the mind of the viewer, it's really an important truth about our mortality. That question is, just who are the walking dead? Is it the zombies or is it the humans? Have you ever thought about what it means that these people hearing Peter's sermon at Pentecost were cut to the heart? What does it mean to be cut to the heart? Well, unless you're a skilled surgeon and doing open heart surgery, I think it means you're being dealt a mortal wound. You're being given a death blow. You know, embedded in this plea is an understanding that whatever they should be doing, the the people respond, brothers, what shall we do? Whatever they should be doing has ultimate and eternal consequences if they are truly cut to the heart. It means you're on the brink of death, but you understand what it means to face death. It wasn't lost on these early Christians and the Jews hearing this sermon that the consequences were the crucifying of Jesus. As Peter says in our passage, that it was your sins, you crucified the Lord of glory. And it's it's the same for you and for me, isn't it? It is our sins that caused him to stay on that Roman cross. And I think when we realize this, we too should inevitably be asking Jesus, Brother, what shall we do? And I think the real question then is, what does it mean to repent? Isn't that Peter's response in his sermon? They're cut to the heart and they immediately cry out, Brothers, what shall we do? We we crucified Jesus, the Son of God. Peter says, repent. I think it's very similar to Rick in The Walking Dead. It means that we need to learn and accept that the old world we once lived in, the old person that we were, is dead. If it were not for Jesus. You know, the fall has changed everything. Sin has tainted us. We are helpless, as if trapped in a coma, unaware of our sure death and demise. I think what's worse is that we all know intuitively that our helplessness is the reason why Jesus was sacrificed in the first place. Our sin is the reason why he came and why he came to die. But what does that mean for us? How how can we repent? What What does repentance look like in a true biblical sense? I think one of the best quotes I've ever heard comes from Tim Keller in in his teaching on the prodigal son, son, that, that wonderful parable in Luke 15. He says this, What must we do then to be saved? To find God, we must repent of the things we have done wrong. But if that's all you do, you may just remain an elder brother. To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Wait, what does that mean? Repent of 
all the reasons we're doing good, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. What, what does he mean? Well, I think we need to think for a moment just about that story of the prodigal sons. And notice that I said sons and not son. See, the younger, the younger son's sin is, is easy to see. Reckless living. He's gone off. He's squandered the wealth of his father. And he's living in such a way that he ultimately stoops to eating with pigs. And so repentance for the younger brother means that he's, he's turning from this lifestyle and he's going back to the father. He's going back to where he belongs. He's going back to home. And, and what he finds very quickly is that all the while the father had been waiting, had been seeking, had been coming after him. But what about the older son? What, what is his sin? Well, after all, we see him turn away at the end of the story. Sin had gotten the best of him too. He does not come into the party. He refuses. But what do we notice? The father goes out to him as well. You see, the father's love precedes all else. He chases the older son just like the younger son. And unfortunately, the older brother replies angrily, See, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. What's the older son's sin then? It was the mistake of thinking that his obedience is what earns the father's love. It was the mistake that he could earn God's love. That's the older brother's sin. Beloved, isn't that just like you and me? All too often we think, but you know, I'm, I'm such a good little Christian. I come to church fairly regularly. I, I even come to Sunday school. You know, I help people. I might serve at the soup kitchen. I might do this. I might do that. I come. I'm here religiously. I do all of these things. The real question is, why do you do them? See, repentance for the older brother means that we turn away from our own supposed righteousness. You know, when I was younger and I was growing up, I was taught, I think faithfully, but I was taught that repentance, you know, is that 180 that we do. We turn away from our sin, but, you know, there's a whole lot that happens in this movement. And if we're not careful... We turn from one sin, maybe it's like the younger son, maybe it's out in the open, some very you know, debaucherous living, maybe it's not. Maybe it's like the older brother. But we turn from one sin, and if our aim doesn't ultimately land on the righteousness of Christ, as Jeff has said, the free gift of God in Jesus, then we're just turning from one sin to another sin. It's as if we're zombies groping around in deadness for something that cannot give us life. You see, if at the end of the day you think, I've got to stop doing this and try harder at doing this so that God will accept me, sin has got you still. Beloved, repentance is not a directional turn. It is a turn away from your sin and unto Jesus. Trusting and resting in Him alone. And I'm here to tell you, there's nothing harder that you will ever do in your life. Because it requires you to die daily to yourself. To your own ability to earn God's favor. Why is this? Well, it goes right back to our passage. Peter has just said, it is your sin 
that crucified the Savior. Brothers and sisters, it's my sin that has put Jesus on the cross. And he calls us to follow him. He says, you need to take up your cross too. You need to die daily. If you will come after me, let him take up his cross. But I think Peter continues in his indictment. You know, a large part of the crowd here are the Jews gathered from all around Jerusalem and Judea. And he preaches to them at Pentecost. And he says, you should repent. And what else? You should be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now think about that. Following Judaism all of their life, all of these systematic rules and regulations, much like we can be tempted to go through the motions of church. He says, you need to be baptized in the name of this man that you've just killed. That's, that's a high calling. And I think sometimes we, we misunderstand what it means to be baptized into Christ. You know, I, I cringe a little bit when, when I hear people say, you know, that's, well, my faith, that's, that's just between me and Jesus. You know, that's just between me and God. I don't cringe because I'm upset with them. I cringe because my heart is breaking. You know, our world has so twisted and warped Christianity that people actually think they can believe in God and not be intimately woven into the life of the church. Let's think through that for a moment. What does Jesus call the church? He calls it His body, doesn't it? Paul tells us in Galatians 3, if you're baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Well, now wait a second. If someone believes in Jesus, then they've been baptized into his name, they've put on his body, the church, and yet have nothing to do with God's people. Something doesn't jive. What's really going on with that statement? Well, I think as we grow up from spiritual milk to spiritual meat, we have to call a spade a spade. And what we're saying, what we're saying when we're tempted to profess that that's not for the church, that's just for me and God, it's really saying that you want to do things your own way. That it's up to you, after all, you know, who can see that invisible relationship you have with God? Paul tells us that no one knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person. So when someone says that faith and life is just between them and the Almighty, well, they're really saying they want to live life their own way. They're saying that brothers and sisters in Christ should have no sway over their eternity. And you know, that's really a problem with step one. We failed to repent if we give over to that temptation. In whatever fashion, we may still think we are in control that our righteousness will somehow find merit before God, that some part of our life is what we control. You know, might think that a prayer prayed 30 years ago will count for salvation. And I think ultimately their question they're asking of Peter is, what can I do to be saved? And notice, that's, that's not what the Jews ask Peter. They didn't ask, what must I do to be saved? In other words, what, what certain few things can I do in order to, to get a check plus from God? They ask simply, what shall we do? There's an indefiniteness in that question. There's an openness. They have no idea. If I've crucified Christ, what can I do? 
You see, they're begging not just for a little prayer to say. They're begging not just for a certain few things to do. They're not looking for one-time action or a self-help list. They're seeking a way of life. They're seeking fellowship with the risen Jesus. Ultimately, they're seeking a church. Do you notice that they call the Jews, or the, the Jews call the Christians brothers? Don't let that go unnoticed. It's a familial call. It's representative that they've given up. They've abandoned their old way of life. And they're seeking a new one. That's exactly what Luke records for us in verse 41. He says that there were about 3,000 people saved, right? No. 3,000 people added. 3,000 souls added. What were they added to? They're added to the body of Christ. They were added to the church. He says it even more explicitly in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. You see, it's not enough that we talk about being saved as an individual, that Jesus died for my sins. In fact, I think really there's, there's no such thing. We're to talk about being saved into the body of Christ. We're talking about being saved into the fellowship of believers, the communion of saints, as we will confess very soon. And isn't that what our shorter catechism tells us? What is baptism? Baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit doth signify and seal what? Our engrafting into Christ and our participating in all of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. You see, baptism here is not just be dunked or sprinkled and go on your merry way. Baptism is being united to the true vine that is Jesus. It's not a one-time thing. It's a way of life. That's why in the book of Acts we find the Christians later referred to as people belonging to the way. The way of Jesus. Following Jesus. Peter says, you want to know what to do? Repent. Give up on your own righteousness. Give up on your efforts to become lovely enough that God would accept you. And accept Jesus. Accept that He was willing to love you so much that He would let Himself be crucified. That He would demonstrate the power of God by coming back from the dead. And that He would call you intimately to join Him, to follow Him, to be a part of His body. You know, that's why we take vows when an infant's baptized. It's a beautiful thing. You stand up in recognition that it's not just the child's job to come to love the Lord, but it is incumbent upon all of the believers in the body to raise this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And every time we do that, you stand and you reaffirm your vow that God will never give up on you. That at baptism, it has no matter of what you do, but it's all the Lord signifying what He's done on your behalf. So repent of your meager efforts to earn His favor. And trust that if you are engrafted into Christ, then you are engaged to be the Lord's. The most beautiful picture of baptism I've ever heard is, well, it's like, 
an engagement ring. It doesn't mean that the young woman's already married, but you ask her how important it is. It means she's engaged to be with that young man. It means you and I are engaged to God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think the question that comes up over and again in this series is, you know, can this motley crew of misfit survivors, can they die to themselves? Can they give up on the old world that they long for? Can they give up on the way of life that is so evidently gone? And can they live to a new world order for survival? One that calls them to repent of who they once were. And it calls them to live in the midst of a body of believers that is their only sure way of survival. That's a picture of the church. What unites us is not outward signs of religion. It's not that we sit and stand in the appropriate places in our service. It's that we all are engaged to Christ. And that he binds us together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Beloved, I'll close with this. There's a sense in which you and I are Christians immediately upon waking up from that coma. As soon as the Lord, through the work of his Holy Spirit, regenerates your heart, convinces you of your sin and misery, acknowledges You are dead in your trespasses and sin. When you call out to Christ for His grace alone to save, you are immediately a Christian. Saved, washed clean. That is irrevocable. No one can take it from you. But beloved, there's also a sense in which you and I are not truly Christians yet. I don't want you to mishear me. You're not in danger of losing your salvation. But there's a sense in which we are not truly Christians because we have not followed Christ to the extent that He has given to us. You see, we will only truly be Christians when He returns, when He fully conforms us to the image of God. You see, now is a call to follow Him. Each of us, the call has been placed on your life this morning to repent to be baptized into the way and to follow Him. But, but beloved, don't miss this. Do you see what we have at resurrection? Do you see what we have with Easter? It's the proclamation that death has been swallowed up in life and one day Christ will return for you and for me and He will call you out of the grave by name and He will give you a new body and He will infuse it with life and no longer will we be followers of Christ because we will be with Christ then we will be truly Christians because we will be little Christs. We will no longer seek after the Lord for He will just as the Father and the prodigal Son come running to His people and embrace them. And He will put a royal ring on your finger and a robe on you as you are clothed in His righteousness and we will all be transformed in the twinkling of an eye never again to leave His presence. But for now, He calls you to come and die. 
You cannot have a true hope of the resurrection unless you face the fact that you are already dead. See, we are the walking dead. But beloved, it is no longer we who live. It is Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live, we live to him. And if we die, it is gain. And I want you to live in the good news of that gospel this day and forevermore.